This morning we will go back to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, and we will read chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. <clears throat> now, concerning brother, now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Alice. A short passage today. Uh, but a passage packed full of all kinds of good stuff for us. As Alice said, we're returning to 1 Thessalonians today. Remember, they're a young church, a persecuted church, and yet a very missional, outward-thinking church, as you even heard in verses 9 to 10 today, as their love spread out to Macedonia around the area. Remember, Paul had to flee from this town, flee from this church, because he, his own life was in danger, and now he's writing back to them to establish them, to equip them in the faith. And in chapter 4, two weeks ago, after three chapters of greeting, we made this transition in the letter. Now Paul's applying the gospel to three areas of life. First, it was sex. And you're back this week, so I think that went okay, hopefully. You're back, so you're here. This week, it's work. And then next week, it's going to be death and grieving. Well, as Paul today talks about work and the life of work, something was going on in the church, the Thessalonican church. He was writing back to them. A group of people had become idle. They had ceased working. He talks about it in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Uh, chapter 5 of our book, he says this, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Admonish those who are not working. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now, Paul's not condemning, as we're going to hear this morning, he's not condemning unemployment. Those who don't have a job yet want to work and can't find one. He's addressing those who can work, but won't or don't. And there's a big difference there, isn't there? A really big difference there. You know, as I heard this passage read this morning, or, and as I was studying this week, I thought, I have a really, uh, actually a pretty good challenge for us with this passage. The passage just in and of itself kind of sounds pretty authoritarian and commanding, like, get to work and do it because I told you so. <laughs> if you listen to Paul's words. And if work was just work, and it didn't have any God-given purpose or, or, or theology behind it, you might hear the passage that way. But this morning, Paul connects our work life to our love of others. He connects our work to our love of others. And, and, and just up front to make sure, if you're in the stage where you're hearing this now, you're going, like, well, I don't work here. This has nothing to do with me. I'm retired. This has nothing to do with me. No, 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 no. This isn't just work for the sake of a paycheck. This is really how we live all our life, how we work and do things and interact with people. So this is for all of us. So if you're retired, you don't get a checkout pass today. 
You still need to, to, to hang in there because there's a lot in here for us today. But did you know that? Your work is, is an expression of love for others. In these verses, Paul explains that one of the ways we love others is to value our work and to do it well. To value it and to do it well. By, by working well, we, we're, we're imaging God to the world and valuing the creation as he does. That's what we're going to kind of talk about today. Now, my first job was working at Blockbuster Video, sort of dating myself there. I was 18 years old and a senior in high school, and, and, and that made me the oldest on staff. So that means I had the great privilege of getting 25 cents more an hour than everybody else. <laughs> yeah, that's a great. But that also meant I was 18, so I could work the closing shift, which went to 1 a.m. as well. I, I thought, wow, 25 cents. And I realized later on, wow, I'm getting to get home at 1.30 a.m. and have college class at 7.30 the next day. I got to tell you, it was pretty hard standing there at a video rewind machine at 12.30 a.m. to feel like you're loving Jesus and others. That's challenging. Be kind, right? Rewind. <laughs> I think that was the phrase. So I, there's a challenge here because work is hard, and a lot of us sometimes don't like our jobs. It's a tough passage for us. I also know Oregonians are hard workers, I, th I think I, I just something I've learned from being here five or six years, there's a great work ethic here in Oregon. And so a lot of us are hard workers. So when you hear a passage on work, I've got my work cut out for me today, pun intended. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at three values. The values of loving others first. Secondly, the value of loving through our work, loving others through our work. And then the greatest value, how valuing Jesus' work can redeem our work or your work and put it in a proper context. And I mean all work. All work. Grab your outline. Hopefully you have your text open. Let's begin by talking about this first value. It's just the value of love that we sang about today in a multiple of our songs. Here it is. Let's talk about the value of loving others inside our church, but also outside the walls of the church. The value of doing that. Paul frames his appeal with love to the church here who had stopped working. They'd stopped working. They were idle. And he's wanting us, as he frames this appeal to the people who had stopped working, he's framed it with love. He wants us to think internally about our love for one another here inside the church so that it'll translate to life outside the church, how we love others. And the context of chapter 4 is really important. Remember, do you remember the close of chapter 3? Well, if you don't, we're going to look at it. It's popping up behind me there. The close of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, here's what he said. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, all people, as we do for you. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, that's another important phrase, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. And then he goes on through this chapter four, after this is the context, he goes on to say, well, let me show you how to do that in the areas of sex, in the areas of work, and in the area of death and grieving. How to do, love more and more and walk in a way that pleases God. That's our context here. And he reminds them in verse nine, look down at your text. You yourselves, he says in 4.9, you yourselves have been taught by God 
how to love one another. What does that mean? He says, I don't even really need to teach you this, he says. Now he goes on to teach them how to do it. But what's he getting at there when he says, uh, you know, you've been taught by God? What does that mean? In reality, what Paul's saying is, I don't really even need to write to you anymore about love because God is love. And if God dwells inside of you, he will teach you not only about love, but how to love through his spirit dwelling inside of you, convicting and shaping and, and challenging our loves. Romans 5 says something similar. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What Paul's getting at here in 1 Thessalonians and Romans 5 and other places is that if you've come to Christ, you have been born again. A new birth, a new heart, which means new desires have been put inside of you. And the one who's done that, the one who's there, is the author of love. And our capacity to love each other in the church, and outside the church, that means, doesn't come from just trying harder. If I could just pull myself up on my bootstraps or work a little harder at love, I'll get it. That's, again, that external, outward, in way to think when the Bible always goes inside to out. It actually comes from yielding to God's Spirit that's already dwelling inside of you if you're a follower of Christ. It's an internal work to love more. It's not just try harder. Of course we exercise our will, but the transformation comes from the inside by being willing to have the Spirit turn things up, shake things up in your life, and, and, and order your disordered loves in your life to put love of God first. Think of Paul's direction in other places in the Bible. Ephesians 5 to wives and husbands and kids and parents. You know that big section there? He, he tells them how to love one another, how to live one another. Well, how does he begin that whole section? He begins it with, be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of God, who's poured his love out in your heart. He says, be filled with the Spirit, which isn't necessarily like a quantitative measurement like water in a cup. As a Spirit, when it's referred to in the Bible, it's mostly referred to as the Spirit of truth. Jesus said, this spirit's going to come. He's going to remind you the things I've taught you. He's going to bring things to your mind and to your heart. Now, those might be individual, unique things that he speaks to each one of us, but they're always on the heels of and based upon the truth of God. And so when Paul says, love more, you, I don't need to teach you anymore. He's saying, you've got the Holy Spirit. And, and to love more, you need to have that true experience of his love shed abroad on your heart, a steeping in the love of Jesus that melts you to love more inside out. First John says this, we know we have passed out of death into life. Why? How do we know? It's a test to see if, if you're, uh, uh, to test of your salvation. We know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the, the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Romans 5, it's been put in your heart. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You, you can test yourself to see if you are in the faith. That's what, what John is writing here. 
You can test yourself. Do you love those in the church? Do you love those in the church? Do you love God's people? Do you love to be with God's people? Spend time and, and, and get involved in each other's lives. So let's talk about that for a minute. Let's consider what a church might look like in the absence of love. You know, a church can have great music, great programs, great preaching, a healthy budget. And you know what? It can have all those things and can be missing love. All of those things. And when love is lacking from a church, you can tell something is off, something is wrong. Maybe there's a coldness in people or a lack of, of spending time together before or after service or outside of church. Maybe there's not much joy or the people there might feel superficial or a, 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 aloof. Now a church with love, what does that look like? Well, one sign was this morning, there was such a robust singing coming from this congregation this morning, wasn't there? David even said, you guys, I can hear you guys today. I hope, I think that's a sign of love, a robust singing church. People who are real and transparent and, and open. And we talked vulnerable. We talked about that at the beginning of First Thessalonians. As Paul is so vulnerable in this, in this book to make us uncomfortable even. Genuine friendships and relationships come in churches that are loving churches. A hunger for discipleship. A loving church has people whose friend, friend pools are not all filled up. They're willing to add one more. That's loving church. And genuine lo love flows, as John is saying here, from a genuine relationship with God. And Paul's saying that here too. You have been taught by God how to love. Love flows from a genuine relationship, in other words, with Jesus. But here's where we begin to transfer kind of outside the walls of the church to our, our, our work life now. The Thessalonians' love went throughout, verse 10 says, Macedonia. It spread out. They loved other churches too, that meant. There wasn't competition between church on one corner and church on the other corner. When one flourished and had people coming or, or coming to know the Lord or a successful type of ministry or outreach, they all were happy. They loved throughout Macedonia, the text says. They loved other churches too. But that love, as we know, as we were just read in John and here too, it's for all outside the church too. Verse 12 says, look down at the bottom of our passage, says, so that you will walk properly before outsiders. What does that mean? That means that the church was never meant to be, never meant to be an island of, it, of itself and its community. Our life was always supposed to continue outside of our fellowship, and, and as churches must, we must live outside of our fellowship as well. We're going to be around outsiders, it means. Those who, in other words, those who don't trust Christ, those who are not members of the, the church. We want to be in the community and for the community. That's who we want to be. That's, how, that's what the Lord describes loving church. In the community and for the community. Loving the people of the community. And if we can't first love inside the church... How well do you think we're going to do that outside the church? Here's an example of that, or just a, a, a metaphor, an image for us to kind of get the idea. Think of a musician, a professional musician, who gets on stage and performs. 
Now, you don't, and I don't see, but outside of that performance, off the stage, behind the stage, thousands of hours went into practice, didn't they? Countless hours. There's some hour, I think it's like 10,000 hours or something like that. If you give to something, you become kind of a, a, an expert at it. Thousands of hours have been practiced outside that performance. They've got it. They know their stuff. So when they step up on that stage, they know what to do. They know how to do it. And it looks effortless, doesn't it? It looks like, oh, I wish I could do that. Why would it be any different with thinking about our love? Here is where we practice it. Here is where we do it. Here is where we get, hopefully, countless hours practicing loving one another so that when we go, it's not a stage, it's not a performance, so to speak, so that it doesn't transfer all the way. But, you know, when we're living outside the church walls, we'll already know, oh, I know how to be loving. I've been taught that in that loving community. I've experienced it from others. I've been able to share it with others. So then we go outside where it can be hard to love others like the musician stepping on the stage with thousands of hours of practice, we're ready to go. Bethany Church is a loving church. It is a loving church. But as Paul encouraged the Thessalonians, let's pray that our experience with the Spirit will help us to do so more and more, as he encouraged them, more and more and more. Let's go for that. Be together in that. Encourage one another in that. Remember, that's the passage context. More and more, the end of uh, chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4. More and more so that we will have a greater impact on our community. That's why. So that we will walk as one who pleases God. So that we will grow in our desire for the lost. Which is why throughout the beginning of this series, we were praying for a couple people by name in our growth groups. Keep doing that. And as we now transfer and think about outside these walls, where's the one place you spend most of your time apart from home? Work. Work. <laughs> work. I see some people going, yeah, work. Right. Right, work. It's, one, it's really one place you have an opportunity to be loving and interact with those who don't know Jesus yet and to make an impact. Our work is part of walking before him and it pleases him. We're going to head into the second value in a second, but I just want to say that as we head into it. Our work is part of what verse 12 says, walking before him in a way that pleases him. So did I please God working at Blockbuster Video? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> How about your job? Think about it for a minute, what you do for work. Do you think it pleases God? Do you look at it as a way to love others? Let's look at this second value to talk about, to flesh it out a bit. The value of seeing work as a way to love God and love others. We're going to look at some guidelines or some subpoints here, you might call them, uh, to, to unpack this a bit. But it, this can be challenging for us when sometimes we feel like we can't maybe even stand our job, or it's exhausting, or we hate the night shift, or our coworkers are nasty, or... Here's the, a true reality, too. How about the, the fact that the workplace is becoming much more inhospitable to Christians? Much more in the last couple years, especially in the last five to ten years. A lot of even the training, a lot of, I know some of you have to go through, I've talked through some of the DEI, they call it, diversity, equity, inclusion training, which really does challenge, I know, a lot of believers and what we hold to be true. You know, we used to have someone who attended church here. They've since moved out of town 
out of the state, actually. But um, he used to attend church here, and he worked at a big uh, financial firm in downtown Portland. And he was pretty convinced, and I was too, actually, after hearing his stories, that he was let go primarily because of a lot of his Christian views. And that was really hard for him, and it was hard for us as a community because we lost a wonderful family. Um, so I know this can be daunting as we think about being a Christian in our workplace. But Paul says here, verses 10 and 11, though, loving God and loving others, it, it goes together. Between verse 10 and as he transitions to verse 11 to talk about work, there's no punctuation. It's all one long sentence. So you can't really say, well, he's talking about love in verse 10. See, it's another sentence here in verse 11. So those aren't really, no, no, no. They flow together in the Greek. There's no punctuation there. One way Paul is saying to love God and others is our work. Look at, pick it up in verse 10b with me into 11. He says, we urge you to do so more and more. That's love. No break there. Keeps going on. And to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Do so more and more. We urge you, Thessalonians, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to aspire, to make it your ambition to work well. To work well. In whatever you do, not just for the paycheck, but whatever you do. This could apply to, to working at house, on the farm, with yard work, with housework, with caring for our grandkids. I mean, it could be a number of things we could call work. You know, sometimes, I think why Paul gets at this is because sometimes we can compartmentalize our faith, can't we? We can put it in a little kind of box and frame it. and We can actually compartmentalize our whole life. Sunday is about learning about God. Work is for earning money, and school is for learning, and sports are for leisure. But that's not the way the Bible views life. The Bible doesn't compartmentalize life up into little spheres or sections or, or, or boxes. The Bible actually views all of life as being worship, or at least having the potential to be worshipful. All of life. In the Bible worldview, there's no split between sacred or secular. Because where you go with your faith, you take Jesus wherever you go. So there is no compartmentalizing for the Christian. As Paul said, we know this verse, you probably heard it. So whether you eat or drink, those are pretty common things, right? We all do those. But whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's a whole life worldview. That's an un unable to compartmentalize view of the world. Everything you do. And our work was given to us by God all the way back before the fall. So the Adam had a job. Eve had a job. They had things to do before the fall. So we can't just say, oh, it's only part of the fall. No, because I believe we'll actually work in the new heaven and earth. Some kind of job. Something to do. So work is given to us by God. Why? Because he worked. He did lots of work in creation before the fall in the garden. And we work after the fall, though it is more difficult, Right? The Bible's pretty clear. It's harder now. But because it's from God, all of it has dignity and purpose. All work. I, 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 if I could say that 10 times in a row, it'd be a waste of time. But I, I wish I could. All work, unless it's obviously inherently sinful work, all work has dignity and purpose. And when you do that work, 
God is pleased with you. He looks favorably upon you. He sees you using that body and hands and mind and soul that he gave you to do something on earth, something with the stuff of earth. So what is the value in the work then? And if it pleases God, what is the value? And how do we love others then? If Paul's connecting love to work, how do we love others and God through our work? We're going to do, I think there's four or five little guidelines there we're going to work through pretty quick. So let's take a look at them. Here's our first guideline. Loving work is work that helps others for some just kind of common good. It's a way to love others through work. It's work that helps others for the common good. What I love about this passage is that Paul's challenge to work with your hands, do you know what it shows us? Christianity is a really practical faith. He says, work with your hands. You can love God by working with your hands. Being a disciple goes far beyond just what we're doing in the here and now in this room right now. Working with your hands, he says, you know what it means? It means nine to five as well. Or if you've got swing shift or graveyard, what, you know, it means those shifts as well. Our faith goes with us. It's a really practical faith. But I want us to pause here and think about this for a moment because we often think of work and value of work and work of loving others. We can tend to over-spiritualize it. And we think of terms of, of spiritual work as the really important stuff. Now, sharing your faith at work, absolutely important. Is it challenging? Yes. Is it risky? Yes. Is it part of what loving at work means? Yes. But I want to focus a little different angle this morning. I want us to think about your job or even your job you used to do. How does it help people or bring about some common good? I mean, common good, just some good in life. You might say, well, I worked in retail or I work in construction or manufacturing or, or maybe food service or, uh, or finances or, you know, farming. You think, well, okay, how do I help people? Here's the what to ask. Was it, is it helpful in some way to humanity to keep life going on earth? Does it in some way bring some kind of order to the world and to life? And if you've got even the tiniest yes in there, it pleases God. And it's good work. And it has dignity. From the food worker to the customer service bagger at Cutsforth, to the engineer, to the farmer, to the mechanic. These jobs help people. And if they help people, God calls it good. And if it helps people for the common good, he says it's wonderful and it brings him pleasure to watch you do it. All work. Think just for one second about our roads, the roads we drive on. Oh, I'm, I get so, don't you get so frustrated when the construction's happening on Ivy and you just can't get through, which it is right now? It's frustrating. You're going to grumble a little bit. I got to go around that way. But think about our roads for a minute. Do you know how nice it is to be able to go on a road trip that takes a couple hours instead of 20 because there's roads? I mean, because somebody engineered it. Somebody paved it or graded it before that, then paved it. And then somebody maintains it and keeps, keeps it, takes care of it after it's been made. I mean, that is good work. The, the people, men and women in those jobs might not look at their job that way. Oh, but if they could, how different they'd look at their work. What happens if we don't have those roads? 
Do you get to your doctor's appointment? Does the ambulance get to you at your house in time? <laughs> Do you get to the store to get food as often as you need it? I mean, just think about even something so simple and practical as work. Or let's take it even another level. How about the trash collector, the garbage man or woman? Do you think they think of their work as dignified? Should they? Yeah, they absolutely should. There's a reason garbage men and women strike in certain cities uh, when something isn't going well in the city. I mean, there's a reason they do that. What happens when the trash collector stops getting the trash? I mean, at some point, at some point, we would be overrun with rodents and disease, which means death, right? If they stopped getting our trash. And some of you are like, well, just throw it on the burn pile, right? I mean, well, yeah, you can do that too, but we don't all have that luxury. Um, You get it though, right? You stop collecting the trash, life kind of comes to a screeching halt after a month, two, three, four, five, six. Imagine two years without trash collecting. There's value in it. There's dignity in it. Don't sell your work short. Don't sell it short. Wherever you are, God has you, at least for now. So do your work as a way to love God and love others. Love God and love others. Paul said to the Corinthians, your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. And if we think about that with God, who are we to say which job and careers are the ones which will bear more fruit? How do you know? We don't know that. God could be using you in a hundred different ways in your job or in some type of work in your life that you don't know about. So it's really not up for us to say, well, my job doesn't really matter. No, no, no. Paul says your labor is not in vain. And if God is who he says he is, he can take the most, what we would call menial job and use it for his glory and your good. I believe that. Our job is just to be faithful and work to his glory in ways that help people and the common, for the common good. Here's a second guideline under work to love and loving work. Loving others is finding a work that fits you. Finding a work that fits you. How do we know Paul is talking about work in this context? He doesn't say that in the verse. He doesn't say, find a job that fits you. No. But how do we know? Because the people that weren't working had become really dissatisfied, disquieted, and bored and complaining busybodies. <laughs> That's how we know. They began to meddle in the affairs and, 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 and business of others and become busybodies. Verse 11, he said, Work so that you can live peacefully and mind your own affairs. What he literally is saying there is strive for rest. Work for rest is what it literally says. And the idol here, those who'd stop working, they were not quiet inside. They were not restful inside. How do we know? They were complaining busybodies. And the antidote to that, Paul says, is work. Work. One of the great things the Protestant reformers, Calvin, Luther, and others, during that season of history, 1500s and the 1600s, one of the great things they did, and I think the Bible does speak to, and they, so I think they were right, was that they brought back to us the idea of work as a calling by God. That time it was just basically those who worked in spiritual work, the church, priests, monks, nuns, those were the ones that were called. And they said, no, 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 we're all called to something. We're all called to some vocation type of work. He's called us all to something. And as we think about something that will give us rest and and inner peace, the work we should look for, we should try, 
We should try at least so that we don't become disquieted, bored, and, and just dissatisfied with life. We should try to find work that fits with how we're wired, our passions, our gifts, our desires, our talents, the way God made you. This is one time where it's good to look inside, to think, think like, I need to like think about this and look inside in my work life and how it fits me internally, who I am, how I'm wired, what I can do, what I'm good at, what I have passion for. Your work is a calling. So a question to ask, is there a quiet your work brings you? Now, of course, it brings you stress, and it can be hard, but is there a quiet satisfaction after a good day of work, a peaceful satisfaction? Because we're called to work. It's clear. We're called to work and if you're working and yet you're still totally dissatisfied, disquieted, and you just, you're, you're in everybody's business, maybe you need a change of work, something that will satisfy you a bit more. Now, this doesn't mean there's only one job for you. I want to be careful. This doesn't mean there's just one job for you. And sorry, you didn't find that job. You're out of luck for your entire life. No, 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 no. You're, we're complex as people. We've got all kinds of different interests, all kinds of different gifts, and I would say there's more a range of a, a spectrum, probably hundreds of jobs that might fit into something that could use uh, your gifts and how God's wired you. And you love others, Paul is saying, when you find a type of work that gives you a peace about it. You're loving others by doing that because Paul says, hey, those that didn't, man, they're wreaking havoc because they've got nothing to do. They're just wreaking havoc. You love people when you find something that gives you a sense of purpose or peace or, 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 or satisfaction and gives you some contentment to, to quiet your life down. And that's why, you know, sometimes you talk to somebody who's recently retired, the first couple years are, can be really hard. I remember talking to my dad who was retiring his first couple years, and it was like, what do I do? You know, we, we, we begin to realize that point of life sometimes, like, wow, how much... I did get a satisfaction out of work and how it was good. Because retirement isn't always what it's cracked up to be, especially those first couple years, which I think means this for those of you who are retired. It means even if you're not getting a paycheck from your work, it means you still need to find purposeful work to do. Absolutely. You, yes, we can retire from getting the paycheck, but you never retire from the Christian life of discipleship. And there's always things to do that we could be about the Lord's work. So you never truly retire. But for those of you who are still in a paycheck working job, the hope is that you not only find a job that helps the world, but one you're a good fit for. And sometimes those line up a lot. Sometimes they don't. When I was in a transfer uh, in job setting from being a pastor at one place, I had left there and I was looking for another pastor job. I had a job it really did not fit my gifting. Uh, I was, uh, I don't know if I've shared this with you guys before. I don't think I have, but I worked for a friend of mine who would buy foreclosures and flip them. And they would need somebody on the ground to be out there and taking pictures of the home and getting as much information as they could about that home because it was going to auction that day, that morning. And they were there on the courthouse steps bidding and trying to get these homes. And so I had the job of getting about five addresses in the morning and just going out to these places. And it was in San Diego County, driving up to homes and getting as close as I could on the property as much as I could to get as much information about the home as I could. I will tell you, that did not feel like it fit my gifting. <laughs> 
But what I kind of end up finding myself doing, which here's the point of this, is if you find yourself in a job where it doesn't really fit your gifting, use your gifting the best you can in that job. I would knock on the door sometimes because after I got as many pictures on the outside, so they didn't know I was there. I would knock on the door sometimes, and, and a lot of times I would be the one sharing with a renter that their house was going to foreclosure because their landlord stopped paying. And so <laughs> rather than taking pictures, it, it, I guess my gifting as a people person and pastoral, I end up going like, how are you doing? <laughs> are you doing okay? And I'd have to like really like, yeah, okay, it might be your gifting, Jeff, but you got to do your job too, so you got to cut that off. But all that to say, you might find yourself in a job where it doesn't naturally fit your gifting. And you know what? Use your gifting the best you can in that job while you look for another one maybe. That's kind of what I did when I was knocking on doors and people were finding out, you're not going to live here much longer than a month probably. Well, let's talk about another guideline. You know, you're finding a job that fits your gifts. Here's another one. Loving work cares for creation. Loving work cares for creation. I love that Paul honors work done with the hands. Did you see that in there? He says, work with your hands. And technically, everyone in every job really works with their hands on some level, whether it's typing, to digging, to lifting, to, to cooking, to making. We all on some level are writing work with our hands. He says, work with your hands. But Paul is saying something. We don't quite catch it, but he's saying something that would have been absolutely revolutionary and really hopeful for the Thessalonians when he writes this. At this time of history, pretty much across the board, the most important work would have been work of the mind, the philosopher, the teacher, the wise sage who would, who would teach, and the, the orator. That, to them, was like in the Greek and Roman culture, the, that was to be somebody. That was valuable work. Working with hands, you know who that was for? The slave, the servant. It was demeaned. It was looked down upon. It was belittled. And the Greeks and Romans, actually, this is kind of why they thought this, they actually thought the physical world was kind of yucky, degrading. Like, like we're trapped in this physical body, and we just got to get away from it. I just can't wait for the release from the physical, because then we'll get to the real thing, the spiritual thing. And Paul goes out of his way here to say, work with your hands and shape the things of the world. It's, it's revolutionary. They would have thought, what, Paul? You're giving value to my work with my hands? I just, we just revere the, the sage, the teacher, the rabbi, the philosopher. They're the ones who do the real important work. No, no, no. Paul puts value on the physical, material stuff of life that the Greeks and Romans never would have. But we struggle with that a little bit as Christians, that spiritual's the real work and the physical stuff's kind of the evil necessity until we all get to heaven. Sometimes we talk about the Bible in terms of these things, uh, these phases. We've talked about this here. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's the big arc or storyline of the Bible. And do you know that in each one of these, God works with his hands? God works with his hands. In each one of these, he gets physical. In creation, what's he do? He molds the stuff of matter and he brings order out of chaos. Our God was a ditch digger. <laughs> he made stuff. In redemption, he come, it's the most physical. He becomes a man himself. He takes on flesh and even works as a carpenter with his hands. And then he resurrects physically. 
not just spiritually, he resurrects physically to redeem the physical world too. It matters. Matter matters, I think I've said before to us. Matter matters. It's not just about the spiritual afterlife. And then think about restoration when he comes back. There's going to be some type of final battle where there's going to be a lot of destruction. And what's he going to do? He's going to pick things up and build a new heaven and earth. A real physical place. Heaven's not your final resting place. Did you know that? People are there now, but it's actually a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to rebuild the stuff. That means that all work has dignity and value, and getting in the dirt and playing glorifies God. It does, because that is what he did. And he's always done that. He's always done that. To collect trash and preach a sermon have the same value before God. I'm serious. To collect trash and preach a sermon has the same value before God because he cares about the world, not just the spiritual side of it. He cares about the physical too. You see, we're not saved. We're not being saved to be snatched away from this world. We are saved so that we can be part of transforming the world in the here and now because that's what he's ultimately going to do. He's going to come back and transform this place into something new and beautiful. So it matters what you do in the here and now. He's redeeming the world, both soul and, what? Body. The physical stuff, too. And I think the more you work with your hands, the more you actually image your creator. But I know not all of us love our jobs. Not all of us do. Some have really hard jobs. Some love them some days and not other days. Some love the job, not the people at the job. Some love the people, but not the job, right? It's a, it's a complex thing. I was talking with uh, Josh in our church, who's a longshoreman this last week, and he told me he likes his job. He does hard work and valuable work. If that stuff doesn't come off the trains and the ships, we know what happens with supply chain freezes, right? I mean, it's this big trouble. But he said, you know, some days his job he likes more than others. Sometimes there's a really grueling, really hard task. And you know what he told me? He said, on those days, I really have to tell myself, I'm working for God today. My job is I'm working for God. And whatever I do, I'm working for God. It's our next guideline. How to work. How to love God as you work. We actually work, we're doing it to please God. Loving work is work done to please God. Remember, Paul began this chapter, walk in a way that pleases God. What does that mean? Your boss is not really your boss. <laughs> your foreman really isn't your foreman. Your manager isn't really your manager. God is. God is. Your, your work for God ultimately. For some, you might think, well, that, I don't like the sound of that. I'm, I'm working for God? I mean, when, on the, when the boss is on a hunting trip, we kind of all take it easy on some days. And yeah, I can... Uh, time to time, take a post-it note from work and take it home. Or some pens, because I'm short at home. If God were my boss, I would just maybe feel guilty all the time. But that's not what I mean here. When the Bible speaks about working to please God, it's not saying work to appease God. It's saying work to please him. Not appease him or put him in your debt. There's plenty of good, moral people who go to work they try really hard. They feel good about themselves. They make their boss proud or their parents proud and go home on a Friday and feel really good about themselves. But that's not what I mean here. When the Bible talks about working to please God, 
not appease, please him, it means that you and I just get pleasure out of knowing God's getting pleasure from your work. And, and end in and of itself. Know, just knowing that your work gives him pleasure. And really what that means is knowing the gospel. If you know that because of Jesus' work that you are absolutely, totally accepted by God because of his grace, and that becomes a real thing to you, this, and the Spirit has filled you with that assurance and reality, then when, then when you go out into the world, you can work with the sheer joy of pleasing God. Because with the boss that truly matters, you're already fully accepted. You already have full acceptance with him. You can go out, you can work for just the sheer joy of knowing that God is pleased with your job. Whether you work in the home as a full-time mom, whether you work in finance or business or real estate, or whether you're in more uh, hands, construction, manufacturing, things like that, you can go out pleasing God because you know, oh, I'm secure with him. Not appease, but please. Charles Spurgeon shared a story that illustrates this well. I don't think I've ever shared it, but here's a story he shared. It, it points to this. He shared the story that once upon a time there was a king who ruled over everything in a land. One day there was a, a farmer, a gardener, who grew an enormously just beautiful, wonderful carrot. That was a lot for this farmer. Didn't have a lot. And he took it to the king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or I ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you, king, as a token of my love and my respect for you. The king was, was touched and he, he discerned the man's heart. And so he turned to go, the king said to him, wait, 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 wait. You are clearly a good worker, a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and he was delighted and he went home rejoicing and leaping for joy for this great gift he'd been given. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this. And he said, my that's what you get for a carrot. Hmm. That's what you get for a carrot. Uh, what would I get? What would I get with a, if I give my greatest horse? This black stallion that I have. And so he came the next day and he brought his best horse. And he bowed low and he said, Oh, my Lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart, and he said, thank you. And he simply took the horse and dismissed him. Be on your way. And the nobleman turned back, was totally perplexed, and he said, well, what's going on? And the king said, well, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. That gardener was giving me the carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. When you know the grace of Christ, when you know the security you have in him, you're giving him your work. You're not giving your work to yourself or yourself to your work. You're giving him your work. You're working just to please God because you know you've got his ultimate pleasure. The gospel is the only thing that can free us to do something and work actually selflessly. The only thing. It's impossible apart from the gospel to do truly selfless work. You're always giving yourself the horse. Always. It's never about just 
for the sake and the pleasure of the king. You have to know the gospel. Here's our final one. Loving work provides and keeps us from being a burden. Paul's final words. Work well so you're not dependent on anyone. Now, he's not saying here we shouldn't let others help us. It's not the case. And he's not saying we shouldn't express our needs. Remember the context here. He's chastising those who wouldn't work even though they could. They wouldn't. And most commentators think, we'll talk about it more next week, it's because they thought Jesus was coming back any second, and so they quit their jobs. They're just like, why do anything? He's coming back tomorrow, or Tuesday, or Thursday, the latest, right? He's encouraging them to work and us to be hard workers so we don't unnecessarily become a drain or intentionally become a drain on our community, our families, our church. That's not going to make a positive impact on outsiders, which he says in that same verse. So as a church, what does that mean? We don't want to be a drain on our town. We actually want to be a source of abundance, a, a mindset of abundance for our town. Resources, sacrifice, service, love, finances, and most importantly, an abundance with the gospel of life. That's what we want to be. But this all sounds, you know, as we kind of Think about it. It's like pie in the sky. It's too good to be true. Enjoy my work, overflowing with gratitude, working to please the Lord, a joyful heart and attitude, giving out of selflessness. Or you might say, I, you don't even know my work job, Jeff. I can barely drag myself to work. I hate my job so much. Or you don't know how, my, how hard my coworkers are on me. Or everyone always expects me to pick up their slack. You ever had that at work? You know, it's like the group project in elementary school where you're the one that does everything. And everybody else is like, yeah, you're good. Okay, thanks. Or my boss hates me. How do we do it then? It's the final value. Loving and healthy work only comes from resting in Christ's finished work. That's how you do it. That's how we do it. What does it mean to rest in Christ's finished work? Here's what it means. It means that through our repentance and faith, we found the answer to everything we've been working and striving for. In a lot of ways, many of us in the world use our work to strive for that sense of I'm okay, that sense of arrival, that sense of accomplishment. That's pretty much outside of family. Most people use their work as an idol to feel like they're okay in the world. But when Jesus gives you your meaning, your purpose, your identity, your value, and your worth, you begin to look at work differently when you see that all comes from him. Because in that forgiveness, you found that perfect status that everybody in the world is working for anyways, and that fills us with anxiety and self-interest. And if you don't understand that, guess what work will do to you? You'll burn out. You'll either burn out, you'll work too much, or you work too little because you don't have a view of it as something that glorifies God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you not, did not receive it? Until you just work for the sake of giving the carrot to God and not to give yourself the horse. Until you work for God's sake, not your own. It actually won't fulfill you. When you work for yourself or just for the paycheck, work becomes too important and every disappointment destroys you rather than just sets you back. When you work for him, you work from a place, ah, quiet rest. 
I'm okay. My job doesn't define me. If I lose it tomorrow, I've got a loving church family that'll care for me. I'm okay. Matthew 28, come to me all who what? Work, labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There was a day when Jesus went to the house of Mary and Martha in the town of Bethany. Do you know that? He went to the house of Mary and Martha, and Jesus entered the home, and he was visiting and teaching, and Martha was furiously working. Have you ever been furiously vacuuming or cleaning the kitchen before company arrives? Yeah. Get the laundry out of the family room. They're here. Well, Martha was furiously working, and she came to Jesus and said, Mary's not working at all. Why doesn't Mary get to work? Will you tell her to do her job, Jesus? Tell her to get to work. And Jesus looked at her and said, Martha, Mary's found the proper priorities. Mary's found the better work. She understands, in my presence, you don't need to prove your worth. She's found the greater priority. Martha, you're anxious. Come to me first, and guess what? You will actually work better, more joyful, more content. You won't overwork, and you won't underwork And you'll even work hard when your boss goes on a hunting trip. (laughs) Find your priorities, he said. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, you can work really hard to boost your self-worth or pride, and you can even remind yourself how great you are. Or you can keep reminding yourself that every good thing in your life is a product of grace. Rest in Jesus and you will work restfully no matter what the work is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words on work that redeems every type of job in this room. I hope every worker today, whether it's for a paycheck or just for the sake of loving others and their family, will leave here with more dignity and hope because you're pleased with our work. And let us work as those who understand the great work done by Jesus and the security that gives us. We don't have to run the rat race You've done that for us already, actually, Lord. Thank you, Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.